0: Good morning. Well, if you will take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, we'll continue continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8. While you're turning there, imagine with me, if you will, living your whole life with a terminal illness or serious malady that while not necessarily always painful, always prominent, will only get worse with time and will eventually lead to death. There is no escaping it. You hope for a cure, you look for a cure, you scour the internet, you search everywhere you can, you talk to everybody you can, there's no cure. And then maybe at some point a doctor shows up in town and you begin to hear about this doctor and Not only does he have the cure for this illness, this sickness, but he's been able to cure many others. And there's something even more unique that he's able to cure it instantly, completely. There's no follow up visit required, there's no ongoing prescription or medication. I mean, you're excited. You schedule the appointment, you look forward to seeing him. As your appointment nears, your excitement grows more and more. The day comes for the visit. You show up at the doctor's office. The doctor comes in. He asks, what can I do for you? You take a deep breath, and you say, can you take a look at my sprained ankle? He looks a little confused. He knows the seriousness of so many of the diseases brought to him, and maybe this is a test. So he quickly heals the ankle, expecting you to ask for something more. You have that serious sickness, you have that serious disease, but you are now so excited over this nuisance that the sprained ankle has been for the past couple of days that you dart out of the office. The doctor stands there a little bit dumbfounded. The superficiality of the request, knowing that he could have looked at you and known that there was something much more serious at stake. It's a little absurd. Here's a doctor able to cure the most serious of diseases and illnesses of which you were stricken and all you asked him for was help with a minor sprained ankle. And as absurd as that analogy is, it aptly describes many of the persons coming to Jesus for healing in Matthew, asking for healing from their temporary physical ailments while ignoring their greater spiritual ailments. Here they had the great physician of the soul and they came with a sprained ankle. Yes, some of their physical sicknesses were much worse. We read of of lepers. He raises the dead. And yet, it is still temporal. With eternity in view, they pale in comparison. They come with these ailments while ignoring their great spiritual ailments, which condemn them to eternity of death and hell and suffering. However, it's not just first-century Jews who deal with this. Many persons are still coming to Jesus for superficial needs while ignoring their greater spiritual plight. Sadly, even many believers who have had the mortal wound cured still come to Jesus for the superficial while ignoring that sin that still wreaks havoc in their life. (sighs) Let's look at our text this morning from Matthew 8, 14 through 17 as Matthew begins to point us to the real purpose behind Jesus' healing, behind his healing ministry and the greater healing and hope that is promised, all in an effort that we would avoid the same superficiality when it comes to our great spiritual need, that our eyes would be opened, our awareness would be increased, our hearts would be more attuned to our true needs where we are truly sick. Read along with me, if you will. Matthew 8, beginning in verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Pray with me, if you will, while we open and begin our study of the text this morning. Father, we come before you acknowledging first and foremost that we are sick and needy. Father, we have a great need of the physician, of the great physician, as you are called throughout Scripture. Lord, even with the mortal wound of sin cured that is true of so many of us here, we still take what sin remains so lightheartedly. We do not deal with it as quickly as we should. We do not deal with it by the means that you have enabled us to deal with it. Father, help us in light of this study as we study this this morning, may we have a seriousness and a sobriety and a diligence, a renewed diligence in tackling sin in our life. In your name, amen. Well, in verses 14 through 17, Matthew concludes what has been, as he's been setting this up, a rapid-fire introduction of Jesus' healing ministry. Matthew's going to have a lot more to say about Jesus' ministry as a whole, both the teaching and preaching and the healing ministry as he continues throughout Matthew. But this introduction here, he closes out with this third healing example and then a summary ending that really is a fitting climax to this introduction to the healing ministry of Christ. In addition, verses 16 through 17, Matthew Really, his skill and his mastery of the Old Testament are put on display as he demonstrates a thorough understanding of Isaiah's teaching and perfectly weaves it into the life of Christ, specifically into Jesus' healing ministry. As he's going to present, and as we'll look at this morning, as he presents the promised Messiah, the suffering servant who made atonement for sin, and we'll, we'll look at his understanding of the Old Testament, his mastery of it. an encouragement for us to do the same. However, before we can look at the Old Testament reference, we first need to join Jesus and his disciples as they enter Peter's home for this third specific example of healing. You look down at verses 14 and 15 and we read that when Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law, that is Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick in bed with a fever. Luke and Mark tell us that Jesus and the disciples have arrived at the home after attending synagogue, during which Jesus himself had done some of the teaching and the reading that day. And so they return home, perhaps for an afternoon meal, a respite after a busy morning. Interesting ruins, uh, you know, ruins were uncovered that uh, lead us to believe we know where this exact home is in Capernaum. Uh, it was discovered some time ago uh, that indicate a home venerated by the early Christian church and most likely belonging to Peter and was the setting for this passage. You, if you traveled to Capernaum today, you'd be able to see this location. Well, entering the home, Jesus observes Peter's mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. The term lying is helpful here because it's really the idea of being laid up and it speaks to the severity of this fever. This wasn't just a passing fever. This was very severe. He incapacitated her. It wasn't a mild allergy attack or a common cold. It was something that was much more dangerous. So Jesus immediately reaches out, Matthew says, and touches her and the fever leaves her. She then served him that same afternoon and evening. And as brief as this introduction and this tale of this healing is, especially compared to the other two, there's some fascinating things at play in this brief description Things that we should pay attention to as they provide us a window into the character of Jesus himself and an example for us to follow. First, note that like the leper and centurion, this third example Matthew provides is the healing of one who is on the margin, on the outskirts of Jewish society. Women were not afforded the same privileges as men in the Jewish culture. Women were not allowed to worship in the same way nor to even draw as near to God in the temple itself. Additionally, as Carson notes, the Jewish halakha, or law of the Talmud, forbade touching persons with many kinds of fever. So you have someone here who's on the margin of society, similar to the leper, not quite as ostracized. But additionally, they are unclean, not to be touched because of their fever. So Jesus, again, is going to break with Jewish custom in order to heal. And by Matthew's choice of Peter's mother-in-law, we continue to see in these three examples the inclusive and the all-encompassing nature of Jesus' ministry. It was, no, it was not to just Jew. It was to Jew, it was to Gentile, it was to male and female alike. There were none who were excluded from the offer of the kingdom. And that's an important point. We've noted several times throughout our study of Matthew that Matthew goes to great lengths to highlight the inclusion of the Gentiles and women into the story of redemption. Where they have been marginalized and ostracized to an extreme level, Matthew goes to great lengths to show God's love for them. Not just his love, but how they have been woven into that scarlet thread of redemption throughout history. At times, it's both a woman who is a Gentile. Think of Rahab or Ruth. Whether it's the lineage of Matthew 1 to the arrival of the Magi to the healing of the centurion, there is a consistent universal and global theme related to the hope and promise of salvation in the kingdom of God. Well, continuing the story, we note that Jesus' touching of her hand healed her. And we note about this that the healing was instant. What is particularly worthy of note, before we even notice the instantaneous nature of the healing, is that like the leper, leper, Jesus' touch did not cause his own ceremonial defilement. If any other person had touched this woman, they would have been ceremonially defiled. Instead of being defiled, he healed and cleansed the defiled by his touch. Jesus' power and authority over sickness and death, his very sinless nature meant that he could not be defiled. So unlike any other person, Jesus' touch transferred that cleanness to mother's, Peter's mother-in-law in healing her. Throughout scripture, and we saw this when we looked at the leper specifically, throughout scripture, Old Testament, New Testament alike, there's a very close and tight relationship and analogy between sickness and Physically and sin. It's not that sin is at the root of every single sickness, at least not directly, but at least indirectly, because of our fallen nature and the effects of sin upon mankind in this world, it is. And so the prophets, the psalmists, Jesus himself draws a tight analogy between sickness and sin consistently throughout Scripture. And then between healing and cleansing when we see forgiveness of sins. We'll look at it more closely as we get to verses 16 and 17. But like I said, we've already seen that with the healing of the leper, where his healing was described as a cleansing. We also note here the immediacy and the completeness of the healing. Notice that Peter's mother-in-law rose immediately and began to serve Jesus that evening. There's a couple of things that are worth noting because of this. One of of them is certainly the immediacy and the thoroughness of the healing. If it were superficial or a process of healing, she would not have been able to get up and serve right away. Even the best of modern medicine cannot replicate this type of instantaneous healing without time for recovery. Not when you've been completely drained of all of your energy like that. However, Matthew is doing more than highlighting the immediacy and the totality of the healing. Notice the term that's used for her actions. If you have the New American Standard Bible, it says waited on, but you probably have a little note there, and if you look in the margin, it says served. If you have the English Standard Version or another English translation, it will likely say she got up and served. While some older translations may say ministered, which is just an older term for served. Served is the right word here. Now, why is that word choice important? Yes, it highlights the immediacy. Yes, it highlights the completeness. But what else is important about that word served? And how does that apply to us? Well, the response of Peter's mother-in-law is itself paradigmatic for the believer's life. It is an example to the believer's life. Having been healed, she begins serving. In a similar way, having been healed of our sin, we are called to do what? Serve. To serve our Savior. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2.10, we are saved unto and for the purpose of good works that were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As Christians, we are not healed so that we can enjoy our best life now. We are not cured of sin for our own self-service. We are not saved so that we can live this life carefree without having to worry about eternity. That's not why we are saved. Scripture makes it very clear. We are saved, we are redeemed, we are purified so that we might serve. This, by the way, this is what I alluded to earlier, is one of the reasons that church membership, whether formal or informal, is so important. We are to be members of one another. In fact, we are members of one another, and we must act like it that's really what formalizing it does it says let's make sure we are acting like what we are supposed to be like what we've been called to be formalizing church membership is simply a means of declaring publicly that we are members of one another citizens of the kingdom of heaven and we intend to act like it christ has instructed us to serve one another as a means of serving him because he is no longer present in his body with us he has said you are my body serve one another Christ has instructed us to do this. So, as citizens of this kingdom, we are called upon to serve one another and together, through this service, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. If you want to turn there, you can look at Romans 12. Romans 12 opens having provided 11 chapters of doctrinal clarity and really instruction to the Romans. Romans 12 opens and changes where Paul then begins to move into the application of that doctrine. You're probably familiar with the opening of Romans 12 where it says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, logical service of worship. But then he moves immediately into, look down in verse 3, for through the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. The very means by which we serve is by joining together. In fact, you cannot faithfully serve God apart from serving one another. 1 Peter 4 8 through 10, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Be- because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. He's talking to the church here. Yes, be hospitable to strangers, but first and foremost, be hospitable to one another. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Galatians 5, 13 and 14, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love. Serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another. Build up one another just as you also are doing. And then Ephesians 5.21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Serving one another requires being in fellowship with one another, knowing one another's needs. This service specifically includes spiritual encouragement, edification, and growth that results in practical action, whether it be the way we speak, the way we act. This service, Paul says, is to the building up of one another. So we have in response in the response of Peter's mother-in-law, an analogous reminder of the response all believers should have to being cleansed and healed of our sins, to serve, and specifically to serve one another. You've probably realized that it jumped ahead a bit and have already highlighted that close connection and analogy between sickness and sin, just even in this application to our lives. However, before we go further with that, let's finish observing Matthew's portrayal of the events that evening after Peter's mother-in-law is healed. Remember that Jesus and the disciples have just come from the synagogue. This means that it was the Sabbath. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, you know that there's one thing you do not do on the Sabbath, and that is work. In fact, they've gone to extreme measures to ensure and to define and to clarify what was work and what was not work. They even had a limited number of steps you were allowed to take before it was considered work from your home. You had to make sure the fire was set and going so that you didn't have to rekindle it in the morning because that would be work. All sorts of rules and laws and restrictions, some of them quite funny, at least to our ears today. Like mankind is so apt to do, we They had added to God's law and created all of their own rules and regulations thinking that they had a semblance of holiness by the multitude of laws and all in the process they had forgotten the heart of it, what Jesus really desired and required. But because there was no work to be done, they couldn't carry anybody that was sick. So if you had persons who were lame or little children or if it was a further distance to Peter's mother-in-law's house, nobody else could show up. So when it says when evening comes, this is perfectly in keeping with the custom of the day and that the sun sets, the Sabbath restriction breaks, everybody starts to come. They're carrying those who are sick, helping them along. It just helps to put into your mind what has happened and also realize this is not just you know early evening. This is at the end of a long day that now everybody starts to show up. This is going to be a long night. And what does it say? They brought to him many who were demon possessed. He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. Of all who came who were sick, Jesus turned none of them away. Verse 16, we see an emphasis here first on Jesus' authority over those possessed by demons. And a demon possession appears to have been a very serious problem in first century Israel. And this can be illustrated by the number of times Jesus casts out demons from persons. However, unlike the Jewish exorcists with their rites and incantations, Matthew notes that Jesus did it with a word. Just a simple utterance of speech. That's all it took. And if that language sounds familiar, it's because it is. If you remember, who was it who said all you have to do is speak a word And you can accomplish whatever you want. It's the centurion. The centurion we just looked at last week in verse 8. Where he said, don't bother yourself. Don't, Don't disgrace yourself by even darkening my doorstep. All you have to do is speak a word. And he knew his servant would be healed. The power and authority of Jesus was unique. And the centurion highlighted that for us last week. And it's because Jesus was God and is God incarnate. All he must do is speak a word. The very God who was there at creation brought all that is into existence by speaking. He can cast out a demon with a simple word. As a result, his healing ministry demonstrated a power and authority that made the Jewish healers and exorcists look entirely deficient in child's play. And we're not gonna spend much time discussing demon possession this morning or why it was so prevalent in first century Israel or why it seems so foreign a concept today in our Western culture where rarely, if ever, we encounter it. The only comment I do want to make, and this is an important one, so we must be careful not to allow our understanding of the spiritual realm, whether we're talking about heaven and eternity or whether we are talking about demons and hell, be shaped by popular culture or society. Do not allow television shows, movies, books, articles to establish your understanding of demon possession, or even of heaven. If you really want to understand more about it, first read your Bible. It's a good place to start. Both the Old Testament and New Testament have many descriptions that help to shape our understanding and limitations of demons and demon possession. Secondly, read or read accounts from missionaries with that sound theology who have ministered in non-Western cultures. They've encountered demon possession. Satan's strategy varies from locale to locale and even throughout time. It's a very real sickness, if you will. In this case, it closely ties in the spiritual. Oftentimes, the demon possession would manifest itself in some spiritual illness whether it would cause the person to harm themselves, being battered and beaten, or something else. But it was a very real issue, this wasn't made up, it's not some movie or TV show. Down the road it may be beneficial to do a sermon or a class on angels and demons, but we'll leave that for another time. Just understand, and we'll see it here as we transition, the significance of Jesus' authority. We've seen it over sickness and over the temporal realm. We see it over the spiritual realm now in his dealing with the demons. There is no aspect of creation that is outside the authority and the realm and the power of Christ. Notice in verse 16 that Jesus healed all who were ill. This, too, is a reminder of Jesus' authority. Again, over all persons in all creation. It's not just a subset. It's not just those who choose to let Jesus have authority over them. Regardless of whether persons will acknowledge and submit it in this life or not, Jesus still is and has the authority over all. And one day, as we all well know, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, as we've already alluded to this morning, the sickness and demon possession are not the true enemy, right? They're bringing persons who are demon-possessed. They're bringing persons who are sick. And and they're real issues. We don't pretend that they're not real issues, but that's not the real problem these people have, right? It's not the real enemy. The real enemy is the sin that is at the root of all the sickness. The sin that is at the root of the demon-possession. Their greatest need and our greatest need is not temporary healing, but permanent healing that enables us to enter into eternal rest. And secondly, prepares us for the life to come. We must ensure that unlike so many in Israel, that we not be short-sighted and seek only temporal, superficial healing. We must look toward eternity and prepare ourselves for the age to come. As that's what really begins to get set up here, is where is our focus? Are we only focused on the temporal. It's here, likewise, that we begin to see clearly the close connection that exists between sin and sickness. As I've noted in the Old Testament Scriptures and in Jewish teaching, sin was often the direct cause and always the implicit cause of sickness due to our fallen nature. David, showing that close connection, writes in Psalm 103, verse 3, Describing God or describing the Savior, that is Christ, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Here he's using diseases metaphorically, figuratively, to describe iniquity. The close connection. I I could go to dozens of passages that show this close connection. In fact, Jesus himself highlights this figurative use and connection between sickness and healing to refer to sin and salvation and just one chapter over. Turn, turn a, probably the next page over in your Bibles to Matthew 9. And look down at verse 11. Actually, we'll back up to verse 10. It sets the context. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus was acquainted with sinners. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? By the way, they're not saying tax collectors aren't sinners. Tax collectors were considered so abhorrent they needed their own category. It doesn't mean that's how we should think about tax collectors, just so we're clear. Verse 12, then Jesus heard this and he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now what is he referring to here? Are these, is every tax collector and every sinner who came physically ailing? No, he's talking about the spiritual sickness. He's using it again, that metaphor, metaphorical usage, that figurative language that shows a close connection between sickness and sin. And this is going to be important to keep in mind as we now move to verse 17, where Matthew writes all of this, all of these healings, this healing of all who are demon-possessed, these healings of all who are sick, what we've seen with the leper, what we saw with the centurion, all of this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now the question we need to answer is So we look at this text, actually there's several, is what teaching from Isaiah is Matthew referring to? How does, and how does healing all who are ill fulfill Isaiah's message? And finally, what's the significance of that? Okay, so it fulfills it, so what? Why is that important? What does it mean for me? How does it change how I think, how I behave, how I act? How does it help me to glorify God? How does it help me to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom? Well, the first question is perhaps the easiest to answer since what Matthew provides is a Greek quotation of the Hebrew text of, Matthew, or of Isaiah 53.4. You're going to want to mark your spot in Matthew 8 and then turn as well to Isaiah 53. So we're going to go back and forth several times. Matthew, interestingly, doesn't rely on at least any known Greek translations of Isaiah 53. And that's because the Greek translations we have, often called the Septuagint, which is a little bit of a misnomer, the Septuagint really only refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. After that... Everything else that's the Old Testament, Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek, is a collection of other Old Greek manuscripts that found the best ones we could, put them together, and this was the Greek translation. So, in a lot of those translations, what you end up finding, and we see this in our English translations today, we have a number of different translations. Some of them are a little more literal and word for word, other ones are more interpretive and help you to understand the sense of what was meant, as opposed to forcing you to do the interpretation yourself. Well, a lot of the Greek translations of the Hebrew Old Testament, especially the prophets, was a little bit more of that interpretation. Now, that doesn't mean make the interpretation wrong. Not at all. In fact, the Greek, the extant, or the existing Greek translations of Isaiah 53 that we have, Peter himself uses and shows the accuracy of some of the interpretation that happens in their translation in 1 Peter when he describes the atoning work of Christ. But see, Matthew wants to do something a little different here. It's not that he doesn't care about the atonement. The atonement is gonna flow out of what we see. What Matthew wants to do is he wants us to do a little bit of hard work ourselves first. And he wants us to see the connection to healing and the healing ministry of Christ that can be missed by some of those other translations that jump straight to the atonement. He doesn't want us to skip the atonement. He wants us to work our way up to the atonement. If you haven't already turned there, and if you have turned there, look with me in Isaiah 53. I'm going to read just the the first six verses this morning as we look at this. And this is... What is famously called the suffering servant passage. It really begins back in verse 13 of chapter 12, and it goes through the end, I'm sorry, of, of chapter 52, and it goes through the end of chapter 53. And we're just going to read the first six verses of 50, Isaiah 53 this morning. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You're likely familiar with this passage if you've spent much time in church or heard much preaching. You'll notice in verses three and four the terms grief and sorrows. Those are terms... And they're sometimes translated and rightfully translated, pains and then sickness or disease. And griefs is sickness or disease. Which, by the way, sounds a lot closer to what Matthew says in Matthew 8 17, doesn't it? Now we're we'll holding your in place in Matthew 53. Also glance back real quick to Matthew 8 again. And note the term Matthew used there regarding the sicknesses and the diseases. He uses the term carried away or bore, depending on your translation, at the end of verse 17. And it's a term that appears in earlier Greek non-biblical texts, specifically those by a physician who was describing the healing of a disease. And why do I say that? It's because this term has a history, this bearing term, this being born term, has a history of being used in the context of health, sickness, and healing. And Matthew very specifically chose this term instead of the normal term for the forgiveness of sin. It's a term that is very rarely, if ever, used with relation to sin here in Matthew 8, 17 because he wants our attention on the healing of sicknesses and diseases. Matthew 53, 4 is clearly about the atonement. And there's no doubt that the metaphor, the use of sickness and pain refers to the atonement. You look over in verses 10 to 11 of Isaiah 53 and the analogy and the metaphor and the figurative language becomes crystal clear. But if you look in verse 3, Jesus is described as despised and forsaken by men. Why? Why is he despised and forsaken by men? In large part, because he was what? Acquainted with sickness. Now, is Jesus a sickly person? No. So what is this acquaintance with sickness? Well, what did the scribes and Pharisees accuse him of being acquainted with in Matthew 9? Those who were sick spiritually and then what do we find in matthew 8 we find him acquainted with surrounded by those who are what sick sick spiritually and sick physically the answer is not that jesus was himself sickly but he was constantly surrounded by those who were sick and sickly both Literally, physically sick and spiritually sick. He surrounded himself with these types of persons. And again, Matthew 9 tells us exactly why. Because he came to heal those. He came as the healer. So why heal physical diseases? It's because of this close connection to spiritual sickness. Because if he is able to overturn the effects of the curse, then he is able to overturn the curse itself. And it was Jesus' acquaintance and familiarity with those who are sick and sickly that becomes the touch point for Matthew's quotation here. In other words, Matthew is making a, really a very clever and masterful reference to the text. And he's making it to the whole context. He's using careful word choice and emphasis on the sickness, not the sin or atonement directly, but indirectly. And by doing that, he's highlighting the connection between Jesus and the suffering servant Jesus and his healing ministry and the suffering servant who heals spiritual sickness. Matthew wants us to pay attention to the whole context here. And we've discussed this previously, especially back when we looked at Matthew two eleven. But when a New Testament writer refers to an earlier verse or passage, they're frequently referring to more than just that verse. They're referring to the entire context and everything that's built up to that context. Because the New New Testament writers, and even the Old Testament writers who refer to previously written scripture, knew their scriptures well. They knew the theology of their scriptures. They knew how it built and how it grew. And so when they reference a verse, they're not saying, stare with it and only look at that verse and don't look anywhere else. No, they're saying, take that verse, everything it means, all of the context, all of the theology that's built up to this point, and this is what you need to pay attention to. Matthew is making certain that his readers understand that the healing ministry of Jesus marks him as the suffering servant, specifically. Probably two years before the cross, Matthew is saying, you need to already have in mind throughout the rest of my gospel, this is the suffering servant. And the way we know that is because of his healing ministry. It's not that Matthew wants us to brush over or ignore the atonement. Matthew Wants us to see the significance of this healing ministry as a sign, a promise, and a validation that Jesus is the Messiah who will suffer for our sins. Additionally, Matthew does not want us to see the healings as a means unto themselves. He wants us to see beyond them. Matthew's calling on us to recognize that this healing ministry is not the atonement itself. You could get very caught up and carried away, and you can imagine and this did happen with the crowds. They got caught up in this healing ministry of Christ, and ultimately, what ended up happening? Two years later, some of these same crowds are crying out, crucify him. Why? Because they only dealt at the superficial level. They got caught up in the healing, not in the reason for the healing or the power behind the healing. Jesus' healing ministry brought to realization in the clearest possible way that Jesus was the Messiah who would bring atonement for sins and the true spiritual healing that Israel and all nations need. D.A. Carson notes that Matthew 8, 16 through 17 explicitly connects Jesus' miracles of healing and exorcism with the atonement that had not yet taken place. They served as foretastes of and are predicated on the cross work that is their foundation and justification. But there's even more. The healing ministry, combined with the promise of the atonement, points not only to the cross, but beyond the cross. It points to the future kingdom benefits themselves in a unique way that the atonement alone does not. It points to the abolishment of sickness and death. It points to the kingdom. Matthew 8 is a limited and localized preview of Christ's millennial rule and the believer's resurrection experience when sickness will be no more because sin will have been eliminated, says one author. Jesus died for sins, but the effect of the atonement for sin was to ultimately reverse the full effect of the sin curse. One of the clearest and most painful reminders of the curse of sin today is sickness and death. It was since Genesis 3, and it's the same today. One of the most painful reminders that we live in a sinful world is sickness and death. You would think we'd get used to death because we're around it all the time, but we don't. The passing of a loved one and a friend, no matter how many have passed before, still hurts. Why? Because we weren't created to die. Sin entered. And because of sin, we suffer and we die and we experience sorrow and tears, longing for the day when they are no more. One of the, this is the reason that Isaiah uses the metaphor of sickness and pain in Isaiah 53.4 to talk about the atonement. As J.I. Packer notes, we must observe That perfect physical health is promised not for this life but for heaven as part of the resurrection glory that awaits us in the day when Christ will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power which enables him even to subject all things to himself. Full bodily well-being is set forth as a future blessing of salvation rather than a present one. Matthew is calling on his readers to see that the greatest hope and the great hope that is promised in the healing ministry of Jesus. He wants us to see what it is that's promised. First and foremost, it's looking at the cross. It's looking at the atonement. We will be forgiven of our sins, but it doesn't end there. It continues. He's looking beyond the cross to what believers get to experience in eternity. This is why Being a citizen of the kingdom means so much. There's immense hope in this passage because it highlights the promises. Other promises, by the way, from Isaiah. All throughout Isaiah, we find passages similar to Isaiah 25.8, which says, he will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And that promise, what was longed for, again, all the way back from Genesis 3, is found... All the way at the end in Revelation 21 4. We read, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. How many persons in this world come to God asking for the superficial? Never asking for healing from their true ailment. Never realizing their deep need. And how many of us as believers act like the foolish patient who comes to God for a sprained ankle while ignoring the sin in our lives? We come asking for help with finances, with decisions, with a new job, all the while ignoring our greatest need, which is the elimination, the mortification of all sin in this life. That's not wrong to ask for those things or to pray about those things. We're to cast all of our burdens on the Lord because he does care for us. But what is wrong and what is foolish is to ask for them if we are at the same time ignoring sin in our lives. It's like walking around with a gunshot wound while trying to panhandle for some extra cash for dinner. You may not even make it to dinner. Matthew's message of the healing and atoning work of Christ is a message to the saved and to the unsaved alike, to those who are citizens of the kingdom and those who are not yet citizens of the kingdom. For those who have spent their whole life putting a band-aid on their spiritual wound, The reminder this morning is to confess your sin to the great healer who is offered as a sacrifice, offered himself as the sacrifice. You don't go in for open heart surgery or lung replacement and find a surgeon who's willing to give you their own heart. But we have a healer who did, who gave his own life for you. Who offers a sacrifice on your behalf that you might experience the joy of salvation and true, lasting healing? For the believer, for one who has repented of their sin and recognized that Christ is Savior, take the time this morning to make sure, potentially reorient your attention to the greatest need you have on this earth. It's not your house it's not your job it's not your friendships it's not even your family as important as they are your greatest need on this earth is the elimination of your sin which said another way is your holiness and your sanctification it's not something that you can do on your own and yet you're called to do it You must utilize the tools that God has provided, which begin with prayer and reliance upon the Holy Spirit. I read a quote this week by Craig Keener that's really all too true saying, Were the Spirit to be withdrawn suddenly from the earth today, most of the church's work would continue unabated. Think about that for a moment. If the Spirit were removed, many churches wouldn't even notice. And I agree wholeheartedly, and it's a sad indictment on the church too much of what we and i'm speaking corporately and broadly here too much of what we what falls under the umbrella of christian or christianity is spiritless it's man's effort however i don't believe it's merely a description of the church corporately i believe it's the same statement could be made concerning many individual lives of believers who are going about their life, attempting to live without the Spirit, not doing what Galatians 5.16 says, which is to walk by the Spirit. And the end result will always be frustration, discouragement, and failure. Ultimately, on the Day of Judgment, all those efforts, all those works are going to be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble if they are not done by the Spirit. So how do you do it by the Spirit? First thing is, go back to the Beatitudes. Beatitudes. Recognize your poverty of spirit, your great need. Recognize that you cannot do it yourself. Confess that, acknowledge it, pray for help. Mourn over your sin. And then study scripture. Just be busy about the spiritual disciplines. One of the greatest blessings God has given by the way for growing, for sanctification, for holiness is the body of Christ. So be around the body. If we long to hear those precious words, well done, good and faithful servant, then we must avail ourselves of the tools and methods God has prescribed for living in this world and putting sin to death in our lives while living for the glory of God and to proclaim the kingdom of God through our words and through our deeds by serving him because we have been healed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning from both Matthew and Isaiah. We thank you for the atonement that was made by Christ who was crushed who carried our iniquities as we celebrated this morning in communion. Father, we are eternally grateful. Thank you for the reminder that Matthew draws of the great hope of the cross and the hope beyond the cross. May we rejoice in that. May we live with an eye towards eternity. May we set our gaze on heaven and eternity, and run with patience, the race that is set before us, that this life, all that you choose to bring into it, with patience and endurance, laying aside the sin, the selfishness, the personal desires that entangle us, may we lay those aside, put them to death each and every day, that we may reach that narrow gate and hear it declared, well done, good and faithful servant. May we be faithful ambassadors of your kingdom as we go from this place. In your name, amen.